Welcome to Season 6, Episode 1 of The Trust Show. This is going to be a squirrel episode uh, because I got distracted. And the date today is July 1st, and I typically do record my episodes a couple of weeks in advance, but uh, with different things that happened recently, I had to uh, record the episode today. And obviously, we are just about to start the 4th of July or Independence Day weekend, uh, long weekend. And I thought that what I'll do today is going to be a little different. I'm going to share a few stories, a few personal stories that you probably never heard before. And I want to tell you about someone very special to me, right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? The first story will be on how I got my citizenship. And back in uh, 1998 was uh, the year that we really decided uh, back in Israel, my wife and I, that we're going to be moving to uh, the US. And initially it was to uh, California, to Silicon Valley. Of course, that same week, uh, we also found that uh, we're pregnant. Well, actually, mostly my wife uh, was pregnant with our first daughter. So by the time we moved in September of 98, she was six months pregnant with our first daughter, Maya. And we took uh, pretty much everything that we owned, uh, feeding 10 suitcases, whatever we didn't sell, and we needed it in the U.S., uh, feeding 10 suitcases. And of course, that was the time that uh, you didn't have to pay an extra $25, $50, $75, or $100 for an extra suitcase. So we took uh, 100, oh, we took 10 suitcases and didn't pay $100. And uh, of course, my first lesson landing in San Francisco uh, was that if you have 10 suitcases, don't rent a compact car. I came in uh, under a visa, a work visa, an H-1B visa. Uh, We renewed the H-1B visa, and at some point, uh, I had to uh, go through, we had to go through the uh, green card process to become uh, permanent residents, which I believe we finished in 2004. And uh, right after that, as soon as as we got that, uh, we knew that uh, our goal is going to become uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, we feel very patriotic. We feel very belonging to uh, that we belong to to this country. And uh, you have to wait a f- a five years from the moment you become a permanent resident. And sure enough, uh, right before those five years were up, uh, when it was time to start the process, we started the process of becoming citizens. Uh, the, the process, I'm, I'm not going to take you through the process, but I'm really going to take you through the last part. And in the last part, this is the first time that you're actually sitting for an interview. And the interview is not only an interview, it's actually a quiz, too. They ask you uh, questions. 
Uh, and and by the way, before uh, when when you prepare for that interview, you get a book, and that book has a hundred questions. Now maybe the process has changed since then. I don't know. That that was in two thousand nine, and it has been thirteen years since then. But uh, we got a book, and the book had a hundred questions with the answers. So it's kind of a history, political everything book uh, to know more about the U.S. And uh, I, I don't know if all kids that go to school that are born in the U.S. know the answers to all those hundred questions. So we had a hundred questions and uh, during the interview, they're going to ask uh, 10 questions. Uh, we, we separated. Uh, my wife and daughters were in Israel at the time that uh, I had my interview. So I, I did it by myself. They were going to ask me 10 questions. The interviewer was going to ask me 10 questions. And uh, I had to know at least six correctly. Well, the first question that he asked was, who was the first U.S. president? Who was the first president of the United States? Well, let me ask you, who was the first president? I know, I know you're thinking this is a trick question. Well, actually, maybe it is. The book says George Washington, and we all know George Washington to be the first president of the United States. But I knew that he wasn't. You see, George Washington became president. He was the first president under the Constitution. And he became president in 1789. But the United States claimed its independence and, and issued the Declaration of Independence on July, July 4th, 1776, 13 years earlier. So, what happened in those 13 years? Well, during those 13 years, we had what was called the colonies. And uh, we had the Congress of the Colonies. And there were people who presided over it. One of the people who's considered considered to be one of the first presidents is uh, a man by the name of John Hansen, who became that in 1781. But the first real president, the president that really held the title, and this is what his title was, it was the President of the United States in Congress Assembled. And his name was Samuel Huntington. And he became that president. Uh, He was elected. He was the first person to be elected to that position on September 28, 1779. He held that position for about two years until 81, uh, followed by John Hansen and and beyond that. And of course, uh, after the uh, Constitution was ratified, then... um, George Washington became the first president under the Constitution. And this is why the book says George Washington. This is why you know that it's George Washington. But I know that it was Samuel Huntington. And here I am sitting in front of the interviewer who just asked me that question. Who was the first president? And I'm thinking to myself, what do I do? Do I tell him? Do I tell him that it was Samuel Huntington? But then I realized that I had an objective that day. My objective was to get the questions right, to become a U.S. citizen, and nobody gets hurt. 
So I said George Washington. He marked it as the correct answer. Everybody were happy. I later that day, that afternoon, I became a U.S. citizen. But before, before that happened, right after when when he was apparently done with the interview, he was printing stuff. He asked me a question that nobody had asked me before. He asked me, "When were you first exposed?" To the United States. Back in Israel, when were you first exposed to the United States of America? And nobody had asked me that question before. Now, what I did not realize at that time was that uh, that was not part of the interview. He was done. I was getting my citizenship, my citizenship that day. Uh, I, I passed. He was just trying to pass time while his printer was printing all the forms that he needed me and himself to sign. But he asked me that question. When were you first exposed to the United States? And I thought about that. And then I realized that I actually do know. I know the exact date that I was first exposed to the United States. That date was October 8, 1973. I was eight years old. This was the third day of Israel's Yom Kippur War. Now, Israel won the uh, Six-Day War in 1967. And to some extent, uh, there was this, this atmosphere of uh, whatever war they're going to throw our way, we're going to win it. And we're going to win it in probably less than six days. But that wasn't the case. In 1973, we started losing our air force, our fighter jets, to surface-to-air missiles, to Russian surface-to-air missiles around the Suez Canal. And we pretty much lost about half of our air force. While the Egyptians were making progress in the south and the Syrians were making progress in the north. That was probably one of the first times that we saw our fighter jets being shot down and in, in, in quantity. And I remember being an eight-year-old, I remember that Israel's Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, came on the radio and said, this is going to be the end of the state of Israel. I'm not going to go into the politics and the background stories and the who started shooting first and, and why, why were we held back. But think about that from the perspective of an eight-year-old who just heard the Minister of Defense, the person responsible for defending Israel, saying that this is going to be the end of the state of Israel. What's going to, be ha what's going to happen of us? What will happen to us? And then I remember looking up to the sky and hearing this huge sound of, of a jet, but a, 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 an airplane, but, but it, was, it sounded different. It sounded very loud. And I looked up and what I saw was very, very different than anything I've seen before. I loved airplanes. Even by the age of eight, I already loved airplanes. I knew what a seven, what a Boeing 747 jumbo jet is. But that thing, that thing was bigger. 
Now, just so that you know, Israel is such a small country, such a narrow country, that in order to land in Ben Gurion Airport, which is the major airport in Israel, the, the only international airport in Israel, which is kind of halfway between the sea and the Jordan uh, River, in order to land there, you have to fly at 4,000 feet or below with your flaps down and landing gear down by the time you, you pass the, the shoreline. And, and that was just about where we lived, in Yafo, not too far from it. That plane had a huge number of wheels underneath it. It was gray. It was not only huge, but it was one of the ugliest planes I've ever seen. And under the wing, I saw the writing and I could read it. United States Air Force. That was the first time that I saw that. Now, a little of the background story, not, not on the Israeli side, but actually on the American side. Richard Nixon was the president at that time. And it really doesn't matter what you think about Richard Nixon as a president, but he was a big, a great friend for Israel. And the reason was because re when Richard Nixon was a child, his mother once told him that when you grow up, one day you will have the opportunity to help that Jewish state. And when that opportunity shows itself, you will take it. It was pretty difficult to figure out for the Americans, how do we help Israel without uh, agitating the Russians, without turning that conflict into World War III? And of course, remember that in 1973, we're pretty much in the height of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. But Richard Nixon at that time decided that he's not going to let Israel bleed to death. And he decided to start sending support to send fighter jets to replace the fighter jets that, that we lost to surface-to-air missiles. Well, initially, to not make a big deal out of it, they used the Israeli airline, El Al, the 747s that Israel had, which, which were, if I remember correctly, there are four of them. They converted them from passengers to cargo to fly over unmarked, get loaded with fighter jets and fly them back. Well, there's so much that you can do with only four of them until Nixon said, this is just not enough. They need more. And he started sending those huge airplanes, the C-5A Galaxy. I was really answering the, uh, the immigration uh, interviewer's question, but then I realized that he was not doing anything. He was just listening to my story. And when I was done, he said, I served in the Air Force, in the U.S. Air Force, on board a C-5A Galaxy. Needless to say, that day, uh, that afternoon, I did get my citizenship. And I want to now uh, move fast forward to 2013. In 2013, uh, I somehow got convinced into running for the uh, Independent School District Board uh, that uh, in the city where I live, in Plano, Texas. 
and uh, I lost. I lost the first election. But but I decided that one of the reasons that I lost the elections is that because I, I didn't really know everybody in this city, even though we lived here uh, for 10 years at the time. And, and more importantly, the people did not know me. And I needed to change that. And, and what I found was that the city has a program. It's really a great program called the Leadership Plano. And so I enrolled and I was accepted. You have to be accepted. Uh, I was accepted to Leadership Plano Class uh, 31 uh, that started in 2013. And uh, I'm going to put that story aside for a second. I'm going to start another story and then, then we're going to go back to Leadership Plano. One day I get an email and the email has on the top, uh, looks like a letterhead of the White House. And uh, right underneath, it's, it opens with, Dear Friend, it was sent to my personal email address. And it said something to the extent of, uh, you are hereby invited to a meeting of the uh, uh, business council, the White House business council. And a company called, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the Business Forward. That, that's the name of the company. A company called Business Forward is going to reach out to you uh, to get your social security number to arrange for security clearance to enter the White House. Now, I know what you're thinking, and I'm thinking exactly the same thing. And it is unfortunate. A very high number of the emails that we get, the, the text messages we get, the phone calls that we get are spam. A growing number of those are not just spam, but they're actually fraudulent. They are trying to steal your identity. And that to me was a perfect example. I mean, seriously. So I'm invited to the White House, but the important part is that somebody is going to call and ask for my social security number. So I started thinking, uh, you know, let's find, I mean, just kind of out of curiosity, let's find the holes in that email. So I did the reply just to see the email address that it goes back to, and it actually goes back to something at whitehouse.gov. But you know what? Um, I think that you can kind of get around that by having another email address as the reply to versus the email address it was really sent from. So I'm not sure that somebody really hacked into the whitehouse.gov uh, website. So somehow they, they got around that. And I started hovering over different links and different areas. I was just, I'm going to find where the hole is. And I just, you know, I looked and I looked and I looked and I could not find a hole. And uh, of course, at that point, the doubt starts creeping up in, in my head. And uh, could that email be real? Of course, you know, you have my email address. Why would you start? You obviously have my name. Why would you start the email with dear friend? Can you just start it with dear Yoram? How do I know? Well, you know, when you need to organize a tour to the White House, what you do is you reach out to the office of your local congressman, Congressman Sam Johnson, 
and uh, you asked them to arrange the tour for you. So I called their office and I told them about that email. They asked me to forward the email. I forwarded the email to their office and they said that they will check. An hour later, they reached back to me and said they know nothing about a meeting of the White House Business Council that I'm invited to. Or a meeting of the White House Business Council, period, for that matter. So they're unaware of it. So how do I know? I asked them. I I was ready to give up on that. And they said, why don't you call the White House? And I thought, (laughs) yeah, right. I'm going to call the White House. But wait a minute. The White House works for me. Why wouldn't I call the White House? So I dug out the number of the White House and I actually called the White House. And I reached the uh, the front desk uh, and um, they, I, I told them about that letter. Obviously, they, they knew nothing about the letter. And they said, they asked me who signed that, that letter. And I looked down and it, it had the name Sam Brown, director of the White House Business Council. So it's Sam Brown. And she said, do you want me to pass you over to his office? Yeah, why not? Let's do that. So she passed me over to his office. His assistant answered and she knew nothing about the meeting. And she said, would you like to leave him a voicemail? And I'm thinking, you know, this is, uh, why would I leave a voicemail? I mean, I'm I'm bothering someone. But you know what? He probably needs to know that this is happening. So she patched me over to his uh, voicemail and I left him a message. A message sounded something like this. uh, Hi, Sam. This is Yoram Solomon from Plano, Texas. Uh, I just want you to know that I had received a name, an email signed with your name and on something that appears to have the White House um, uh, logo on it. Uh, that says that I'm invited here and that a company called Business Ford is going to call me to ask for my social security number. And just so that you know, nobody should ever give their social security number to somebody that calls out of the blue, even if they get an email like this. So I just wanted you to know that this thing is going on. And I hung up. Back to Leadership Plano. The next day, we had a session of Leadership Plano. Now, our executive director, uh, Andre, uh, she was a very, very strict, I'm going to say control freak, and uh, she's a friend, and I say that with all due respect, but she was a control freak. She would tell us exactly where to sit. Now, Leadership Plano was meeting once a month. It was a full day. I actually had to sign a letter that says, uh, on Leadership Plano days, I am not allowed to do anything related to work. I can have my phone. The phone has to be off, not just on vibrate mode, has to be off, and I should not be taking or or placing any phone calls. You know, I have a wife. I have two daughters. And uh, with all due respect, I'm going to put my phone on silent. But if they need me and if this is urgent, then it's more urgent than leadership plane. The next day after that email exchange and and telephone exchange uh, with the White House, we had the leadership plano day. I sat down in leadership plano when the phone buzzed. I looked at the number 
And there was something about this number that looked familiar. It ended with 1414. Well, what is 1414? Why does it look familiar? And then it hit me. There was the White House telephone number. That was the number that I dialed yesterday. So I picked up my phone to walk outside. And as soon as I walked outside, Andre looked at me with this mean, penetrating look. And I could tell that if she had lasers coming out of her eyes, she would be burning me at that point. But I just had to get go out. And I went out and I answered the phone. Hi, this is Yoram. And on the other side, what I heard is, uh, hi, Yoram, this is Sam Brown from the White House. You left me a message yesterday. There really is are only two people that would know that I left him a message. One of them would be me. And I said, yes, uh, I, I did. I appreciate you calling me back. You didn't have to. I just wanted you to, to let you know that, that I received an email like this. And he said, so will you, you, will you be able to attend that meeting? Well, that was an interesting turn. I said, wait, so there is a meeting? And he said, yes, we sent you the, the email because there is a meeting. We want you at the meeting. And I said, and the meeting is where? And Sam said, at the White House. You mean like Washington, D.C.? And he said, yes. So I asked, how many people did you invite to this meeting? Thinking, you know, he's going to tell me that they invited 1.2 million people and it's really just going to be, uh, you know, whoever answers or whatever. He said 60. So you want to tell me that there is a list of 60 people in Plano, a city with more than a quarter million people, and somehow I managed to get myself on the name of 60 people from Plano who are invited? He said, it's not from Plano. It's from the U.S. How did you get my name? He said, well, we work with a company that's called Business Forward. The White House still works with the company called Business Forward. I still get emails from them. Now I know who they are. And he said, I, we asked them to give us names of business and civil leaders. Um, and they came up with your name. Have no idea how they heard about you. And I don't know anything beyond that. Can you make the meeting? said, sure, I'll make that meeting. You know, I was thinking at that point, look at that, the low level of trust. I mean, I have to say something about trust, right? It is the trust show after all. We have such a low level of trust in messages, emails, text messages that we get, phone calls that we get, that I was 99.9% .9 sure that this was a hoax. Didn't even consider that this could be real, that this is a real invitation to the White House, which seemed pretty far-fetched at the time. And then I walked back to the classroom for leadership plano. As I walked in, Andre again looked up at me with this mean look of, uh, how dare you, how dare you take a phone call uh, when we, I specifically said that you cannot take any phone calls. And I just had to do it. I said, Andre, I'm sorry. I had to take this call. It was the White House. That was the only time in my life I could say that statement, but I did. And sure enough, I did get on a plane on uh, December 18th, I believe it was, 2013. I landed at the White House. 
And uh, it was a full day of, uh, there were about 50 people there from all over the U.S. Um, we had several speakers, uh, including, um, and for the life of me, I'm trying to remember his name, but he was an advisor to the, uh, the TV show, the best TV show ever, The West Wing. Uh, he was an advisor to them, uh, and uh, he was there. Uh, we had uh, Valerie Jared. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a, a Republican or a Democrat. Um, you can help by saying something, by asking something. And just for that reason, it was worth going there. That was the second story, my my White House story. Um I wasn't planning on this episode running too long, and it seems like it will, but I do have to tell you the third one. You know, in Israel, Independence Day is a day after Memorial Day, because we want you to remember that we got our independence, we want to be remembered that we got our independence due to the sacrifice of those who served. Here in the U.S., those two days are are separate, and we have Memorial Day, and and then we have Independence Day. But I do want to recognize that that we got our liberty here in the U.S. because of the sacrifice that others have made. And I want to tell you about a friend and the person who wrote the introduction to the Book of Trust, former Congressman Sam Johnson. I told you about him uh, when I told you about the White House, my White House story, because I, it was his office that I called to get uh, to ask about that, that email that I received. Sam Johnson was an Air Force, a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. He did that during both the Korean and the Vietnam Wars. He actually commanded the 31st Tactical Fighter Wing. In between the the wars, and you know, Top Gun 2 just came out. Uh, he was actually an instructor, a fighter pilot instructor. He did that for the Air Force, not the Navy. So I don't think that it was called Top Gun. But he would have been, a, a, he was a kind of a Top Gun instructor for the Air Force. He was also a pilot in the Air Force Thunderbirds. You know, the demonstration team. At that time, they were flying F-100 um, Super Sabres. He became a colonel, and uh, he was shot down with his F-4 Phantom over North Vietnam. He spent seven years as a prisoner of war in what we call uh, the Hanoi Hilton, which obviously was anything but a Hilton. He received two silver stars, one bronze star, a Legion of Merit, Distinguished Flying Cross, two Purple Hearts for being wounded in action, and many more awards, military awards. He did serve as our U.S. congressman for 27 years until he retired in 2019. He wrote a book. Uh, The book is called Captive Warriors, a Vietnam POW story. I read that book. Um, And he did write the introduction to my book, uh, The Book of Trust. Now, I typically don't read out of a script, I, I just, uh, for this podcast, I, I just have the scripts as, as general guidelines. But this time, what I want to do is I want to actually read to you the entire introduction in his words. Mm-hmm. 
Forward to the Book of Trust by Sam Johnson. Life often shows us how important it is to be able to trust those we know and sometimes those we don't. Without trust, life can be unstable and fretful. As an Air Force veteran, Vietnam prisoner of war, and a former U.S. congressman, I can confidently say that trust has been a key factor to my success. Trust in God, trust in the abilities He granted me, and mutual trust in my personal and professional relationships. Trust is required of leaders and followers alike. When I flew for the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds Demonstration Squadron, I followed the leader from the slot position. During the arrowhead loop and roll maneuver, my canopy was 18 inches away from his 25,000-pound F-100 Super Sabre as we flew inverted at 450 miles per hour. I would have been dead if I didn't trust him and followed diligently. We would have both been. Some of my most trusted relationships were forged under the direst of circumstances. Trust was particularly crucial during the nearly seven years I spent as a prisoner of war at the infamous Hanoi Hilton. I made it through that hellish time because of my faith and trust in God, who I learned would never abandon me, and in the other prisoners of war, men who were dedicated patriots and trustworthy friends. Eleven of us were labeled diehards, kicked out of the Hoa Lo prison, and each put into solitary cells in a prison located in downtown Hanoi. We wouldn't cave to our North Vietnamese captors. We resisted at every turn as hard as we could. We called this new place Alcatraz, and ourselves the Alcatraz Gang. During the 42 months I spent in solitary confinement, I trusted those 10 men to continue fighting alongside me, to encourage one another. We used to communicate by tapping on the wall in code, even at the risk of torture. When I was the last man remaining in solitary, my trust in those men was proven, proven yet again. They went on a hunger strike until I was returned to the main camp and given a sailmate after three and a half years without seeing or talking to a single friendly face. That type of trust builds unshakable bonds. There are four of us still living. And more than 45 years later, I still chat with one of them weekly. I don't know why. Perhaps it was a combination of my faith in God, family, country, and my fellow men. But after I returned home, home, God put me in a position of broader influence in the United States Congress. Serving in the U.S. House of Representatives taught me how rare and important the commodity of trust could be in politics. Being a straight shooter and a person who upholds his word earned me the trust of my congressional peers, who voted me the most respected member of Congress in 2009. Similarly, as a leader of my office staff, I trust the trust that I established with the men and women who worked with me created a positive work environment. My trust in them also set clear expectations in their behavior should be trusted in return. 
They learned that I trusted them to do their work well, while they trusted me to allow them the opportunity to grow professionally through meaningful work work on behalf of the Texas 3rd District that we represented. Despite the deadlines and unusual work hours, there was always the satisfaction of a job well done with colleagues you trusted and respected. One unique case when the trust that I had with my staff was exemplified was on September 11th. That morning, I was at the Pentagon when American Airlines Flight 77 struck the building. Thankfully, I was not on the side of the impact, so I rushed back to my office to be with my staff. Once there, I encouraged them and assured them that we and our country would survive. The foundation of trust we built with one another, coupled with my experience in combat, allowed them to believe my words and find comfort. Even now, after my retirement from Congress in 2019, Many of my former staffers continue to maintain contact with with each other and with me. I attribute those special friendships in large part to the trust built during the time we had worked together. As a congressman representing the Texas 3rd Congressional District, I met Dr. Yoram Salman, who was elected and served on the board of a prominent public school system within my district. Receiving no compensation dealing with the education of 55,000 students, their parents, teachers, and administrators had put him in a position to truly understand trust. He must also have been his, it must also have been his military service at the Israeli Defense Forces 35th Airborne Paratroopers Brigade that taught him how trust gets built under fire, and I respect him for that. I could share many more stories from my life in which trust played a prominent role, but instead, I hope you are inspired by Yoram's research and experience with trust put into words in his book, and that you are encouraged to further develop develop trust, whether it's in your relationships at home, at work, or with God. God bless you, and I salute you. Sam Johnson That was Sam Johnson's introduction to or forward to the Book of Trust. The Book of Trust came out in the first edition in January of uh, 2020. In February, I stopped by Sam Johnson's house uh, to give him two copies of the book and, uh, and we talked a little more. And unfortunately, four months after that first edition of the Book of Trust came out in print, Sam Johnson passed away at the age of 89. He was honored with a full military honors funeral and uh, the Air Force Thunderbirds flew the uh, missing men formation right here in Plano uh, over his funeral. May he rest in peace. I dedicated the Book of Trust. Um, In fact, I'll read to you what the dedication says. It says that uh, the dedicated to those I trust with my life and in memory of Sam Johnson. I hope you enjoyed these uh, stories here. Uh, I wish you a happy uh, Independence Day weekend. And if you're not listening to uh, uh, to the episode on the 4th of July, uh, then I wish you to enjoy the freedom claimed on the 4th of July, 1776. 
I will get back to our regular programming in the next episode next week. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.